0: Well, good morning, Harvest. Good morning. So good to be with you. such a joy to get to open up God's word together and feast on his words together as a faith family. Well, last week, Pastor Doug uh, made note from Gideon's life that just being one degree, just one degree off course in life now um, results in us being way, way, way off course later on in our lives, as we saw at the end of Gideon's life. And And our text today is a real life example of what we are capable of, the links that we're willing to go and the utter disaster that awaits us if we ourselves do not make a course correction and come back to the Lord. So everybody grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges, Judges chapter eight. We're actually gonna finish up something in Judges eight and then when Lord willing, we're gonna uh, finish up uh, all of chapter nine today. So progress. And as you're turning there, I want to take a moment and uh, talk about one of the largest and most impregnable fortresses that mankind has ever built. So you guys up for a little history lesson this morning? Yeah. That's good. Well, it was called, uh, the fortress was called the Fort of Chator. and you can see it on the screen behind me. It was located in the Mawar province and was constructed in 7th century AD, so about the 600s. It was a massive stronghold, and it was built to protect the interests and the people of the reigning Indian dynasty of that day. Now, this stronghold was located on a hill that was uh, nearly 600 feet high, so think Indiana Mountain was eventually surrounded by a 42 foot high wall. 42 feet, that's like six Shaquille O'Neal's standing on top of one another. And this wall encompassed and enclosed approximately 700 acres, or it's about 1.1 square miles. It's massive. There were seven different large iron spiked gates and two 70 foot high watchtowers that guarded the way up to the stronghold. Within and without the fortress, there were a total of 84 bodies of water, which, get this, could maintain an army of 50,000 for four years without going thirsty. Now, within the stronghold, there were four royal palaces. Why stop at one, right? 19, 19 main temples to various Hindu gods one of which contained 27 shrines. And this stronghold comprising the king and the fortress promised them significance, safety, and security, which the people so desperately wanted. And it was so for about 1,000 years, 1,000 years. However, as large and formidable a fortress this was, it was eventually attacked, conquered, And destroyed. And it was said that as it was being destroyed, about 30,000 women and children sacrificed themselves by fire on the altars of their gods. It's an act that's still celebrated as a holiday in India to this day. And the sad reality is that the significance, the safety, and the security that this stronghold promised was in the end nothing more than a tragic myth. And the Hindu gods that demanded the human sacrifice to secure this safety and this protection for the people were ultimately impotent in delivering it. All of this to say, this story helps illustrate that people build strongholds literally and symbolically to ultimately protect what they worship. And I bring this to the table this morning because in our text, we're actually going to see two diametrically opposed strongholds. We're going to see the false stronghold, which has no lasting means to provide significant safety and security, set over and against the true stronghold that has eternal means to provide eternal significance, eternal safety, and eternal security, all by the work of an eternal king. So that's where we're going this morning. Now let's pray and ask God to help us get there. Oh God, as we enter into your text this morning, may we, may I, may us as your saints not take it lightly. May we not approach it half-heartedly, but may we just approach it with every fiber of our being. Oh God, would you help us this morning? We love you and we look forward to seeing you work in us over the next few minutes. Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you recall from our study through this book of Judges, we've frequently shown the slide that you see up by way of reminder because we've ent- uh, entered into some pretty interesting and unique stories, haven't we? A lot of murder, a lot of mayhem, a lot of mystery. And, and sometimes in the throes of that, it's easy for us to begin to... Um, lose sight and think that these are disjointed things that are happening in, in all of redemptive history. And so this slide, we, we sh- have shown this to help remind ourselves that, no, 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 these are actually all interrelated, interlocked, they're not disjointed. And I wanted to show that again today because today we have another one of those interesting texts and um, it's just, it's like this real life theatrical drama that's being played out before us in high definition, and I want us to remember that it's not distinct or separate from what we've been studying thus far. So let's hit the play button and let's watch this theatrical drama unfold before our eyes in high definition. You guys ready? Yep. All right, Acts 1, the false stronghold of Israel. Look at chapter 8 of Judges, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Belbereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all of their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel." Now what we see here in this text in the opening scene, we'll call it scene one, scene number one of act one, we see that Israel is reconstructing the false stronghold. Now, Pastor Cody took us a few weeks ago through the life of Gideon, and one of the things that we saw in that was that one of the first things that God called Gideon to do was to enter into the stronghold of Baal, tear it down, tear down the altar of Baal, and erect an altar to the Lord in its place. How cool is that? And that's very interesting because here, now in verse 33, no sooner had Gideon passed away and gone on to be with the Lord, the Israelites were right back to life before Gideon. And they brought back the altar of Baal, which means they must have torn down the altar of the Lord. And they prostituted themselves before Baal-bareth. In other words, they covenanted themselves with Baal and forsook the Lord their God and they started rebuilding the pre-Gideon false stronghold. It's a total disregard for Yahweh and a total disrespect for the faithfulness of Gideon. Only this time, this time, that wasn't enough. This time, they wanted to rebuild, refortify. They wanted to strengthen the false stronghold. It's kind of like this. Uh, you guys remember from uh, 1989, the uh, San Francisco earthquake? I remember it because it interrupted the World Series. Massive destruction, um, a lot of buildings destroyed. And over time, they eventually rebuilt all of those buildings. And when they did, they used the current technology of the time to actually refortify or strengthen those buildings so that they would be uh, able to withstand greater forces from future earthquakes. And that's what we see is about to take place here with Israel. It's the nature of sin if we don't get it at its root when you just pick its fruit it's essentially just pruning it and guess what happens the next season? Grows back with a vengeance re-fortified strengthened you see they wanted someone not something necessarily but someone that could be a direct image of Bel and they essentially wanted a Canaanite king enter Stage left, Abimelech. Act one, scene two begins, characteristics of the false stronghold. Look in verse one of chapter nine. Now, Abimelech, the son of Jerubabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, say in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubabel rule over you? Or that one rule over you. Remember, I'm your bone and your flesh. What's interesting here is that Abimelech doesn't go and ask them if they want a king. He knows they want a king. That's assumed. And instead, um, he goes and tells them that they actually want a certain kind of a king. And it, it makes me stop and think and wonder, well, why is Israel so infatuated with a king? I mean, I, I kind of get the Gideon part of it because Gideon was such a warrior for the Lord and God did so many great things. And so I kind of get why they wanted to set him up as a king at the end of his life. But now Gideon is dead and now they're whoring after Bel, and, and yet they still have kingship on their hearts. And specifically, why a pagan king? Well, ancient pagan kings were often described as physical images of the gods that the people worshipped. They actually deified kings. They worshipped kings as the very images of the gods. And whatever the king said, whatever the king did, it was to be accepted and believed and followed as the very will of the gods. And I think this is what set up pagan kings as such strongholds for people because they would come onto the scene as deified beings And they would say, hey, I know what you want. I'm gonna give you what you want. And so the people would follow them because they wanted what they wanted. And so here, I think we see Israel is wanting to make their stronghold even stronger with a pagan king. It's willful ignorance of Deuteronomy 17, which says no pagan, no non-Israelite could ever be the king of Israel. It's a total rejection of God. Absolutely. And see, Abimelech knew this. Abimelech knew this. He was no fool. Let's not for a moment think that he didn't know what he was doing. And so he devises this plan, and he puts together this idea of manipulating the people into believing that he's going to give them what they want. So he goes and says, hey, hey. You don't really want 70 Israelite kings, do you? No, 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 no. You really want one pagan king. And oh, by the way, I'm your family. I'm your brother. I know what you want. Come on, come on. I mean, so good was his manipulation that he probably had Sister Sledge singing in the background We are family. (laughs) Goodness, I better leave the singing to Pastor Nick. So, how did the people respond? How did the people respond? Look at verse 3. And his mother's relatives spoke all of these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He's our brother. And the people ate up every single word that he said, they allowed themselves to be manipulated. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Belbereth. Again, I think this is just adding on to the fact that the Israelites are seeing this guy, this Abimelech, as now ascending the throne of a, to take a, on a kingship. And it's the very will of Bel himself. I mean, they're paying him out of the temple and the treasury of Bel. They paid him the 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Belbereth with which Bimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. Verse five. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and he killed his brothers, the son of Jerubbabel 70 men on one stone. Wholesale execution. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel was left for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, which by the way, literally means house of the fortress. How interesting is that? The context of what's happening. And they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So the illegitimate son becomes an illegitimate king and the false stronghold reconstruction project is complete. And the tragic irony of all of this is that this location, this area where they made him king, the oak of the pillar at Shechem, it's the same location that Jacob in Genesis chapter 35 and Joshua in Joshua 24 both pledged their fidelity to Yahweh. And now here we have Israel pledging their infidelity to Yahweh and instead covenanting, whoring after Baal and the image of Baal, Abimelech. Tragic. This is how far people can go off course with no corrections. Now, in all of this, let's not miss the characteristics of the false strongholds. They're all over this text. For instance, the end of chapter eight, we see Israel covenanting with a false God, prostituting themselves to another God. And we see in verse two of chapter nine that Abimelech is now lusting after a false power. He wanted to be king on his terms because he knew, he knew what the Mosaic law said and that he could never be king. So he did his own thing, took matters into his own hands. And we also see then that he speaks a false tongue in verses three and four. He manipulates the people into thinking he's gonna give them what they want because he knows what they want. He knows what he wants and he's going to take it. And then he, verse six, he has sins of false throne. I mean, there is falsehood all over this. Chris, this couldn't happen to us, Right? I mean, we're, we're way smarter than they are. I mean, they didn't even have high-definition television. And not only do we have that, we have ultra-high-definition television. We're far smarter. We could never have that happen to us, right? I saw a poll a while back. Um, it polled three generations, the millennials and then the two prior generations, and they asked them the same five questions. And what was interesting is that they only had one Common response back. You know what it was? Each generation thought they were smarter than the previous generation. (laughs) (laughs) And if that's true, then parents, we are in trouble. (laughs) A lot of you are shaking your hands. No, not true, not true. (sighs) Let me read you this quote by a man, September 1934, who lived in Germany during that time. Remember, that was a very tumultuous time frame for them. This is what he said. The words he uttered, the thoughts he expressed often seemed to me ridiculous. But that week, I began to comprehend that it did not matter so much what he said, but how he said. Hitler's communication with his audiences was uncanny. He established a rapport almost immediately, holding them completely in his spell. His German listeners were lapping up every word as the utter truth. And if that's not enough, just turn the TV on, watch and listen to the current political environment that's before us. See, dear friends, what's going on with Abimelech and Israel is no different than what was going on 75 years ago and it's no different than what's going on today. Abimelech and Israel did what they did because they wanted what they wanted. Thus, constructing a false stronghold out of a false God and a false king. Which brings us to the concluding scene of act number one, scene three. This story we see is a picture of the false strongholds in our hearts. Hey, where did the reconstructing of the false stronghold for Israel begin? Where did it begin? You guys know? right here, started right here in their hearts and in their minds. For them, it started with not trusting and not believing in the promises of God. And instead, they ran into the false arms of a false god and reoriented their entire lives around that. Hard-hearted, stiff-necked, resistant to the words of God. And so it is with us. It is. It starts with unbelief in our hearts towards God. I mean, we simply get to a point sometimes where we don't believe in the promises of God and that he is going to deliver on those promises. And so we take matters into our own hands and we run after those things that we think that will give us our heart's desires. We construct the false strongholds to protect the things that we worship. And the characteristics of the false strongholds are all over our lives as well. We covenant with false gods. In other words, as dirty as this sounds, we whore after false gods. We do. This begs the question, who are you worshiping right now? What you're worshiping is what you're covenanted with. We lust for a false power. We wanna be kings. I wanna be king. So what are you currently seeking to rule over? Is it a spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your employees? And we speak a false tongue. What lies are you telling yourself and others? We live a false life. So who are you trying to be that you are not? And we ascend a false throne. What currently sits on the throne of your heart? For me, fear of man has been a lifelong struggle and stronghold that I battle. It's been that way since my adolescence and it will be that way until I die. And the times where it rears its ugly head in my life are those times that I, I realize I just don't believe in the promises of God. And instead I take matters into my own hands and I wanna trust myself and I wanna trust others to give me my heart's desire. And then the worry, and then the anxiety comes. And if I didn't do anything about it, if I didn't come back, then it would absolutely ruin me. Trust me, I know this. It would kill me. All of this is the fruit of my unbelief. And the ugly truth is the fear of man is the high definition expression of self worship. I love myself too much. And this false stronghold promises to protect, to give me what it has no power to do. So what do you believe about God? What are the false strongholds in your life right now? What we do in this life, the things that we run to reveal what we believe about God so many ways this HD story is us. Okay. Act one, over. Time for a break. Let's call it an intermission. So in Judges chapter nine, verse seven, and we see starting there that Jotham, the remaining son of Gideon, who escapes the slaughter of his siblings, has heard about Abimelech's kingship. And so what he does is... um, he runs out to this little mountain that overlooks the area where they're making Abimelech king and goes out on the little ledge, if you will, and um, he begins to tell him a parable. And it's a parable about an olive tree, a fig tree, a vine, and a bramble, which is not so much an indictment on kingship in general, but absolutely an indictment on Abimelech's kingship and Israel's covenanting with him. <laughs> then he ultimately curses both parties says, may you both burn with fire. (laughs) Drop the mic. (laughs) He runs away. (laughs) We never hear from him again in this story. So the stage is set. The false stronghold is reconstructed and re-fortified. Now let's see if it delivers what it promises. Intermission's over. Acts 2 begins. Enter, stays right, God. God. Look at verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, dealt treacherously with Abimelech. And right away, we see God is setting himself up as the true stronghold of Israel. See, up until this point, God has been silent. We've not heard any any words from God. We've not had any really activities of God that are listed here since way back in Gideon's life. So for quite a a few years, he's been silent. And then to add to that, after Abimelech is made king, he's still silent. God is still silent and quiet. And now the text tells us God is about to do something. He's about to send fire down from heaven. Not quite. says he's gonna send and, evil spirit. Hmm. Hmm. Chris, um, are we about to delve into the difficult doctrine of the providence of God? Some of you just broke out in a cold sweat right now. Others of you just sat up and woke up. We're going to let the text speak for itself. We're going to let God show us his magnificent sovereignty as we read through what he does here. But suffice to say, God can direct evil any way he wants without himself having any moral evil. And how cool it is that we serve a God who can take evil, turn it on its head, and use it for his glory. And we get a front row seat seeing it happen right here. Act two, scene one. First thing that God is doing here is deconstructing the false stronghold. Look at verse 24. Actually, let's pick up in 23. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerubbabel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, And on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops. And they robbed all who passed by them along that way. And it was told to Abimelech. And God was about to take the evil of Abimelech and the leaders and turn it on their heads. And divine justice is about to be served. So the leaders become dissatisfied with Abimelech's leadership. And essentially what they do is they're trying to get people to start thinking, well, if the king can't protect his highways, then what good is he? So that's why they're doing what they're doing. Trying to erode his authority. And so starting in verse 26, we see that a new guy comes into the scene. We'll call him Gael. He comes to Shechem, and during a drunken party at the temple of Bel, he starts to talk. And at first glance, as you read through the text, you might, you might think that um, his talking is the result of false bravado that's coming from the liquid courage that he's imbibing. <laughs> but as, he's, as you read, really read through the text a little, little bit more, you start to see there's some intentionality that Gael is, is doing here. And he, he's coming at a specific time. And so the timing of it all just speaks to this, this strategic nature of what he's doing. So I, I don't think he's drunk and, and speaking because of the, the liquid courage. <laughs> so what do the people do? They're mesmerized. They eat it up. Sound familiar? Second straight time they've been manipulated. What's that old adage? Um, Fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice. The only problem is that the uh, mayor of Shechem, we'll call him Z. <laughs> Z hears about it. He's one of Abimelech's cronies. And so he goes and tells Abimelech about it. And Abimelech, um, and he began to hatch a plan, counter offensive to quell the uprising. And so then the mayor sets up a meeting with Gael at the city gate. And while he's talking, Abimelech begins to ambush, spring into action. He comes down from the mountains and from the hills around, surrounding the valley of where Shechem is located. And Gael realizes it's time to fight. So he gathers his men, goes out into the valley outside the city, fights Abimelech and his men. Abimelech beats them soundly, kills a lot of them, and runs the rest of them out of town. Abimelech's not finished yet. In verse 42, on the following day, when? On the following day, the people went out into the field not to fight, not to fight. They went out into the field because it's harvest time. They went out to harvest, they went out to work the fields. And guess what Abimelech does? Somebody tells him, hey, he's coming, they're coming out. And at this point, you got to think there's a lot of insanity. Uh, who kills 70 of his own brothers and then, and then does this, all this other stuff that, that is happening here? Some paranoia is building, and so he comes out and slaughters all of these innocent people in the field, innocent from the standpoint of they don't have weapons in their hands. And he enters into the city, conquers it, and destroys the city, the same city that made him king. Evil knows no friends, takes no prisoners, and brings utter destruction. And yet, in all of this, we can still see the glorious work of God. Do you see it? Because here we see in the text, we see the grace of God in the midst of all of this chaos. You see, way back in in chapter eight, verse 33, God could have, the second their hearts, before they even put um, their hands on reconstructing the false strongholds and rebuilding the altar, God could have struck them all dead right then, wiped them off the face of the planet, but he didn't. We see the grace of God in this text. We also see the patience of God, what God waits For years and years and years, he's waiting because he wants them to come back. We see the patience of God. And we also see the providence of God. God can take evil, do whatever he wants with it. He can take good, he he can do whatever he wants with it. But recognize this, everything that he does is for his glory. we also see the power of God. You can just see the false stronghold crumbling before our eyes. What power. And we also see the justice of God over evildoers. Know this. All evil will not go unpunished. It will be punished. God will recompense evil. And you see, even in the midst of the evil, God is still reminding us of who he is. He is The true stronghold. And in fact, scripture is replete. Over and over again, God would have us see and understand and comprehend that God is the true stronghold. Look at all of the examples that I've got here on the screen. This is just a few of them. He is the stronghold for the oppressed. He is the stronghold for our deliverance. He is the stronghold for our lives. He is the stronghold for our strength. He is the stronghold for our defense. He is the stronghold for our ultimate safety. Over and over and over again, we see that God is telling us he is the stronghold, the true and one and only stronghold. Just go and read the major and minor prophets and we see over and over and over again, God is saying, I will destroy the false strongholds of my enemies and yes, even sometimes Israel's as well. Friends, we must plumb the depths of God's word and we must pray and we must beg God to help us comprehend the magnificent beauty of what this means. You see, Israel knew this. They knew it. So how did they respond in this case? Look at verse 46. When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of God. Is that what it says? No. It says they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth, the house of Baal. So faced with a magnificent opportunity to gaze into the beauty of God and run into the stronghold of his arms, they instead run into the temple of Baal. And we see here in the text, Abimelech shows up, gathers the wood and the brush, lays it at the foot of the stronghold. He and his men light it on fire, and everyone dies. They're all burned alive in the arms of an impotent idol. The very stronghold that they constructed to save them enslaved them, burned them, and entombed them. Just like Jotham's parable predicted. And we see in verse 50. Abimelech's not done yet. He now turns his insanity on Thabez. And the people of that town run into the stronghold within that city. And Abimelech says, well, if it worked once, I'll try it again. Proceeds to start to burn down that tower's stronghold as well. And an unnamed woman took a millstone that she had you imagine that conversation between she and her husband? <laughs> In the heat of the battle, the city's getting destroyed. They're gra- He's frantically grabbing the kids and grabbing the clothes, trying to grab some food. And, and he looks over at his wife. She's got the millstone. <laughs> and here we see that she's put it to good use. She threw it down on Abimelech. She crushes his skull. And rather than be killed by a woman. This is what they believed in the time. Remember, paganism. <laughs> he asks his armor bearer to thrust him through with the sword and he dies. Just like Jotham, Jotham's parable. Look at verse 56. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of Shechem, the men of Shechem, return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbabel. Divine justice was served. The false stronghold destroyed. The true stronghold was revealed. And the tragic end, we see, to a people who had forgotten the Lord their God, prostituted themselves to Baal, and is scared to see what we're capable of doing. Well, let's remember that this story is really a picture of us. I am Abimelech. You are Abimelech. We are the leaders of Shechem. We need only let God's word fully open our hearts to see it. And this story highlights our desperate need for a savior. Well, fortunately for us, the story doesn't end here. And Chris, what are you talking about? We just finished verse 57 of a rather lengthy chapter. And of course it ends. God clearly ends it. (laughs) But the divine author has written in a final scene. I'm calling it a surprise ending. (laughs) It doesn't take place here. It actually takes place centuries from this time. And it's the ending that the world did not see coming. And for some of us here this morning, it's the ending that we don't see coming. Act two, scene three, we see that the story is pointing us to the perfect power of our true stronghold, Christ. This story ultimately points to Christ. Christ is the rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand as the song goes. Because by ourselves, we would suffer the same exact fate as Abimelech and Israel. We'd have no hope, but God has written in the surprise ending that's really no surprise at all. And now our savior has come to give us the hope and the help that we so desperately need. For it's Christ who climbed up the stronghold of Golgotha and sacrificed himself there as a lamb upon the altar of God. It is Christ who rose from the dead and claimed victory over death. It is Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords who ascends the thrones of our hearts. It is Christ who fights the war of destroying our false strongholds. It is Christ who provides the significance, the safety, the security that we desperately crave. It is Christ who is himself the indestructible, true stronghold. Know this, know this, coming to Christ and placing our faith in Christ does not mean the instantaneous destruction of those false strongholds, but it does mean that we now fight them with divine power. That's the weapon of our warfare. We wake up each morning with this divine power and we go into battle and we fight and we fight and we fight. And if we have to fight to the death, then when we open up our eyes, we will see and behold beauty as eyes have never seen before because we will be in the presence of the divine Yahweh and we will be looking into the eyes of Christ Jesus our Lord And we will enjoy and take pleasure in him forever and ever and ever. Is that you? Is that you this morning? Does that describe you? I pray that it does. And I prayed all week that it would. In a moment... I can't think of a better thing to do than to partake of communion together. So I'm gonna ask the worship team to come and communion service to go ahead and make their way into place. Together, we're gonna remember the significance we have in Christ, the joy that comes from his safety and the hope that we have in his eternal security. (laughs) But before we do that, before we do that, I want to ask everyone to bow their heads. In times like these, I think we just need to get low and uh, get to talking to God and get to listening what he says to us. And so I want to ask some x-ray, false stronghold penetrating questions this morning. Have you come to that place in your life where you have driven the stake in the ground and made Christ the true stronghold of your life? Have you? Guys, I I wish I could do this for you. But I can't. So run to him. Run to the beautiful and indestructibly true stronghold, trusting to give him what he wants for you on his terms and in his ways. And are you currently running to the false strongholds that promise to give you what you want? How about pride? How about anger? How about lust? Control or fear or even shame? What's sitting on the throne of your heart right now? God, we love you. Help us to grow in our understanding and comprehension of how much you love us. Thank you for the victory that we have and tearing down the false strongholds. Lord, it's all for you. Do a work now, Lord. Do a work on our hearts and our minds. We pray this in your name.